You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary. Joining me, of course, a man rising in the polls, Mr. Mike White. Vote early, vote often. And joining us, our good friend, Josh Gravel. Where do I go to get my I Voted sticker? I, I don't have a clue. This week, we're looking at rocking and rolling politicians. Well, at least to some extent, just before Election Day, with Ilya Kazan's A Face in the Crowd, Herschel Gordon Lewis's The Year of the Yahoo, and Tim Robbins's. I guess that's right. This is uh, Bob Roberts. Josh, as our guest, want to talk about uh, with you. This is kind of a tricky one, and usually uh, a question that uh, I don't think we've asked on the show. Uh, what is your favorite memory of any of these three films that we're talking about this week, and uh, why? Okay, this this may be a little bit of a weird roundabout story, but I took a class at community college um, called Film as uh, Literature. And it kind of took different like genres of literature and gave them a, a comparative film. And this uh, Bob Roberts was one of the films that this teacher showed um, for uh, journalism. And I had actually already seen Year of the Yahoo since I had become minorly obsessed with Herschel Gordon Lewis a couple of years before that. This class was my first time seeing Bob Roberts, and I immediately saw the similarities in the films. Uh, so the next class, I brought my copy of Year of the Yahoo in and loaned it to the teacher, who the then following class apologized to the, to the class because he hadn't realized that Bob Roberts had ripped off another film so shamelessly. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll be talking about some of those similarities as we go on. As for you, Mr. Mike? What I'm bringing to the table is definitely a love for a face in the crowd. And I have seen this movie several times and absolutely enjoy it. It was really the moment where I realized that Andy Griffith wasn't just this kind of friendly, down-to-earth, salt-of-the-earth uh character that he has played so many times and seeing him as this very dark character in a face in the crowd gave me a whole lot of respect for this guy yeah i think that's the thing when people think andy griffith they think of two things mayberry and matlock and uh they're not really thinking as dark as a face in the crowd 
Myself, uh, Bob Roberts has been one of those films that I've enjoyed for years. I think I saw it on VHS years ago. And I think just with time and with age, matter of fact, all of these three films that we're talking about on uh, politics right before the election all have a lot to say that even though the, uh, the most recent one is now 22 years old, uh, are still rather spot on in terms of their view of of politics and media and media manipulation and all of that stuff. So I thought what would be good is to sort of start an order of release and start with a face in the crowd and uh, and then work our way through. <laughs> oh, Lonesome Roads. Look out for him. He's mean. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Andy Griffith. Another sensational newcomer from Ilya Kazan, who brought you Marlon Brando and James Dean and Carol Baker. <laughs> Gonna be a. Millions, an idol of the people. Bye! Bye, Lucy! So long, Luther. You're right to me now. I'll be thinking of you, good people. Boy, I'm glad to shake that dumb. Look, don't, don't try to play the noble defender of the sanctity of marriage with me, Papa Man. No way you've been some of those nights when Betty was waiting up for you. You know, you hit me and it'll be all over the papers as much as the people love you tonight. You're can fired. Hit you. I'm not just an entertainer, I'm an influence, a wielder of opinion, a force. A force. Oh, if they ever heard the way that psycho really talks. They're mine. I own them. They think like I do. But they're even more stupid than I am. (laughs) So I gotta think for them. One of the greatest characterizations ever put on the screen in the whole history of motion pictures. Maybe I'm just a country boy. (laughs) But if the president tries to stop me, I'll flood the White House with millions of telegrams. So, facing the crowd, Ilya Kazan, 1957, Handy Griffith, and uh, Bud Schulberg. I, for me, I heard of this film before I saw it, thanks to, uh, of all people, and we did an episode on his film, Bamboozled. If you look at the Bamboozled uh, DVD, I believe there's an interview between Bud Schulberg and Spike Lee, and Spike saying that what a big inspiration a face in the crowd was on his satire of uh, African-American image in media. So that was where he first kind of came onto my radar, and I'm willing to admit that uh, I need to go and investigate a bit more about this guy because I know that he had done some amazing writing. Now, beyond that, I mean, Ilya Kazan, rather well-known director. I mean, Streetcar Named Desire, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, uh, lots of stuff before you get to this point. Yeah, this was um, really, from what I understand, Schulberg had pretty much retired from doing screenwriting. He just was not that interested in it anymore. And he had kind of gone out on his own as a successful uh, writer of books. And he had done 
what is supposed to be a very um, skewering uh, look at Hollywood called What Makes Sammy Run. I haven't read that yet. I've had it on my shelf forever, and I really want to read it. It's right up there apparently with Nathaniel West's Day of the Locust as far as looking at Hollywood. I mean, <laughs> pretty amazing that it was such a uh, dream crusher all the way back in the 30s and 40s as opposed to the Dream Factory, which was portrayed as. So uh, he is pretty soured on Hollywood, and it's only when he starts um, being kind of courted by Kazan, and Kazan is uh, saying, oh, no, I'll respect you. I know how to work with writers. You know, I'll treat you just like I've treated you know the other playwrights that I've worked with, and he's got a good track record, obviously, with uh, Streetcar Named Desire and Tennessee Williams and other films. So uh, he gave them a shot, and they did On the Waterfront together, and then that kind of led to A Face in the Crowd, which was based on a short story or kind of a novella that Schulberg had written called Your Arizona, or sorry, Your Arkansas Traveler. I keep wanting to set this in Arizona, even though it's clearly set in Arkansas. And uh, this was uh, very much all Schulberg writing this, but then kind of collaborating with Kazan as uh, far as the directing and kind of some of the uh, performances and all that. So what we get uh, to start off with is Patricia Neal as Martha Jeffers, who is a radio show host in a small place in northeast Arkansas, and she has a show called a face in the crowd, and she likes to go around, and I guess this is This American Life uh, before This American Life ever existed. This is Radio KGRK, the voice of Northeast Arkansas, bringing you its morning feature, A Face in the Crowd. Whose face? I could be yours. Or yours, or yours, because people are fascinating wherever you find them. This is Marsha Jeffries looking for more faces in the crowd, <laughs> this time from the Tommy Hawk County Jail. Okay, say something. Don't worry, Ma. Everything's fine. Nicest jail I've been in in this part of the country. Oh, stop, stop, Hey, you. You can do something. She goes around and just interviews people on the spot with her tape recorder about sort of their lives and wants to hear sort of authentic voices from the community. And this day she happens to be in the county jail where she meets a uh, guy by the name of Larry Rhodes who uh, is given the title Lonesome Rhodes. And he came in on a drunken and disorderly, but he does have a guitar and a personality and a voice. And that soon leads Lonesome Rhodes, Andy Griffith, to become a uh, local radio personality. Ladies, or I guess I should say girls, boss lady of this year program just shoved a piece of paper at me, says I ain't got but three more minutes. That's what I got against working. It's all tangled up with that word hurry. Go back in my little old town of Riddle, we had a cousin named Harry. We all called him Cousin Hurry because he was always running someplace. Till one day he fell down a flight of steps and broke his fool neck. <laughs> we put a sign on his grave, said, says he's in such a hurry he just couldn't wait to get here. <laughs> Shucks, I was just getting ready to add on a verse about being a free woman in the morning. I bet a whole lot of you dream about that sometimes with all them breakfast dishes piling up in the sink and them cranky husbands to get off to work. And so big and so powerful that... Um people up in Memphis start to realize his value and they decide to bring him up and make him a big star on that new fangled uh, invention called television. I love his scenes where he's trying to figure out 
the television cameras and, you know, which, which little hole do I look in here? And even though I think that he's pretty much playing that uh, bumpkin character, and I love the way that he goes from bumpkin in front of the television set or in front of the microphone into a lot darker when he's off of the off the air and just uh you know we know nothing about this character when we meet him and he can be a mean drunk apparently which is one of the first things that they say about him when before we even see him there and uh we get that kind of mean streak uh showing a little bit throughout the film and it just seems to grow wider and wider as his aspirations get um more and more as his hunger becomes uh larger and larger. I would definitely agree that uh, throughout the proceedings of the film, it grows more and more obvious. But even at the beginning, he I think he's clearly playing dumb or ignorant so that he can kind of see how he can work people in a way. Like, uh, like almost like a con man. Uh, it's totally that. I mean, there's a certain level of, uh, I think, being a sociopath in here. Although I'm I'm not 100% sure if he really wants to be loved or does he want to be loved just so he can maintain his status at certain parts. Say you're going to love me. You're going to love me. You're going to love me. What's your name? Francis. Francis, you're going to love me. Francis, you're going to love me. Love me. Love me. Andrew Griffith, I mean, like I said before, he was able to do so much. I mean, I don't think people realize just how talented this guy was before he was doing television. He was in plays. He had done albums. I mean, the whole... um, what this was was football or whatever the the album that he did so many great stories he was this master monologuist and then you know he did uh, no time for sergeants and was able to kind of spin that into gomer pile and into um mayberry at the Andrew griffith show and yeah so way before matlock he was already like he almost had like a little empire going with uh his media um presence and he was just so good and so talented going back and watching those andy griffith shows he's not just a straight man he's also a you know a, a quite a cut up on the show and he was able to uh just balance that ability to be straight man and comedian at the same time. He wasn't just there kind of, you know, riffing off of Don Knotts as this lunatic, <laughs> but, but he had such good chemistry with so many of these actors that it was just amazing. And an interesting bit that was pointed out in his later interviews was that um, they, the studio uh, originally didn't want him because they thought he was too nice for the role. Which is just perfect that they could cast him against type so well in this because when he starts exploring that dark territory man i mean i would not want to be in the same room with lonesome roads and just beyond andy griffith just the cast in here is pretty amazing i mean it's a uh, young walter Matthau, patricia neal uh like I said, I was uh, before we were recording. I was watching. I'm like, who the hell is that guy? He looks familiar, and uh, I realized that it was Anthony Francosa, who was in um, uh, Tenebrae, which is one of my favorite Argento films. Um, there's just a, an amazing array of people, and the film just looks beautiful. I mean, it's beautifully shot. 
black and white. It's plotted really well. And th- this, I have to say, is the, probably one of the great through lines of all three of the films, uh, beyond some of the ideas and political stuff, is that the uh, the songs really work as well. Gonna be a free man in the morning, free man in the morning, free man in the morning, oh, no, the reason why. Oh, once I had a gal with a big, fat, nagging mouth. She says, honey, let's go north. So I headed for the south. Says, don't know if I'm going to Paducah or KC. Any road that's open makes a free man of me. Gonna be a free man in the morning. Yeah, and he's got several different types of songs and able to use them as kind of the, you know, the themes for the shows, but then also even writing the, uh, the, uh, the commercial jingle for the, what was it called? The Vita, Vita effects. Yes. Oh man. And that whole montage, that was just a crazy montage in the middle of this film when it becomes this whole like series of different spots that they have for this. And they have like the, you know, and now for the feminine touch and now for the masculine. And they had like basically the entire ad campaign just shot as this montage with all these different commercials and different ideas in there. The one woman with that bottle of like, you know, the, the 10 year supply of (laughs) (laughs) next to her bed, just so good. I mean, and it just like that scene was so out of nowhere, but it was perfect with the tone of the film. And the great thing about him becoming the pitch man as things go on, and this is where the politics come in, is that there are politicos who realize that, well, if you can sell that product, you can sell candidates. Look, I got a fella here. You know where I found him? I don't think you'll mind my saying it. In jail. He's stupid. He's got no mentality. He thinks with his feet. But I trust those feet. Now, if he don't laugh, if he don't think the show is any good, then I know there's something wrong with it. Something people just ain't a gonna take to. You see what I mean? Now, Beanie, what did you think of the personality you just saw on the screen? <laughs> well, I... Uh... Oh, come on. Give it to us straight. Flatter than last night's beer. You see your problem now, Senator? How are you going to get this man, this bush monkey, to vote for you? Frankly, I don't know. Well, maybe I do. Do you know what you need to lift your rating from 4.2 to 51.7? You need now hold on to your hat, my friend. You need a whole new personality. A new personality? Well, frankly, that's impossible. And they look to him to get inspiration on how to reach out to the common man. I love that they make three different references to Will Rogers in this film. Like Throughout the film, they keep hearkening back to will rogers and just you know in this day and age i don't think many people remember who he was what he was up to what he was doing and he had that whole just folks kind of thing in spades and they were just 
it's so doing a great job of of kind of contrasting Lonesome Roads to what Will Rogers' public perception was. And then also Arthur Godfrey was another one that people have kind of likened the Lonesome Roads character to. So I went back and I was doing some research on Arthur Godfrey and, you know, just how, oh, yeah, everybody loved him and he was the man you wanted to invite into your TV show or into your living room until he fired this person live on the air once. And that became a huge scandal. And after that, it kind of tarnished him for the rest of his career. And that was kind of that end moment of a face in the crowd. And I, I don't know about you guys. I know a lot of, uh, critics of the day had trouble with the way that the film ended and we don't necessarily have to give away the ending, but did you have problems with how it ended or did you think that it kind of worked out well? I think it's more of a modern ending. I think it's an ending that today we could get behind, but for some reason, maybe in 1957, they wouldn't have been able to. Yeah, I completely agree with Rob. Without giving anything away, it is a slight downer of an ending. And I think that's actually something that we are more used to now, especially going through, say, the cinema of the 70s. I think actually for a modern audience, if you sat somebody down to watch it, they may even be able to see that arc coming. Right. I was amused by the... um machine that he created the applause and the cheers and the awes and all that stuff i mean i don't know where they were with laugh tracks and applause generators uh at the time but i mean that is just you know Mm. if if it was impression it was definitely pointing out just how easily manipulated we are as tv audiences that they have this um you know, the cheering machine, basically, and that uh, bit where he is, you know, using that and having that, you know, like reinforce his ideas and everything I thought was great. It reminded me a little bit of, uh, and we'll talk about this one, Rob, in 2015. There's a scene in um, The Quiet Earth that uh, I was reminded of where a character is kind of doing almost like this Avita speech. And unfortunately, he doesn't have the applause machine, but it really would have kind of worked out well in that scene. And a real interesting thing uh, with the applause machine is how the part that it plays in the film, at one point, it almost becomes like its own character. Yeah. (laughs) The other thing that's interesting in here, and I can't think of another film where this had been done before, and maybe it had been, and I'm kind of, uh, I can't recall it off the top of my head, is today it's very normal when you have a film that's political or, you know, there's a character who's a celebrity and then they have these cut-ins with actual TV hosts, like actual right. news people, mm-hmm. like, you know, like Wolf Blitzer will be in the film or, you know, uh, Bill O'Reilly or, you know, whoever will be in there. And in here you have John Cameron Swayze who used to do the Timex, you know, news spots in the 50s and you have young Mike Wallace who this was, you know, 12 years or so before 60 Minutes where, you know, I, that's where I grew up remembering him but you can go on youtube and you can see all these great interviews that mike wallace used to do he was sort of the um i guess maybe the hipper answer at the time to like what edward r murrow was doing with his sort of you know interview pieces um and also have to say a little bit of pride from uh the, the folks in the grand rapids area was that when mike wallace started his career he started at wood radio which was the place where i also worked and was news director so it's just interesting to see this folding in of that idea which like i said i think would have been relatively new uh 
you know, sort of framing and use within a film of using actual news people to be in your fake film in order to lend some credibility to the news, quote unquote, that's going on within the film. It's great. There's even like little, if you look in the background, like they, they call out at one point when they're walking into this bar and he's like, hey, Burl. And I'm like, is that fucking Burl Ives back there? And sure enough, it was. I had to go on IMDb just to make sure. And yeah, it's like Rip Torn is in here. Charles Nelson Riley. It's just like all the little background players were somebody as well or would be eventually. I don't think Rip Torn was much of a name back then. But yeah, you had mentioned the other guys and I have to call out, you know, Walter Winchell and him kind of, you know, thinking maybe there's a little bit more to Lonesome Roads than uh, meets the eye, but kind of not calling him out too much. The one thing I did like a a lot, too, is that the role of Patricia Neal and just that her, um, I mean, there's this great relationship between her character and Walter Matthau's character and the way that she is being used and manipulated by Lonesome Roads, and especially the the part with uh, Lee Remick is great when it comes to that and just how much she loves him. And Walter Matthau knows that he's a heel, but really can't convince her. And it's just like everything that he possibly can do to try to convince her without driving her away. And I love that whole relationship there of him you know, finally saying like, you know, you have to stop this. You can't go on and just really trying to pull her out of this situation. And she knows it's bad for herself, but she just can't help it. I mean, I can't think of, you know, a more real situation. There are so many people I know where it's like, you're really not good with that person and you really should stay away from them. But there's just something about you that it, you know, you're that moth to that flame, and Lonesome Rose is definitely a, a very bright flame in this film. Another film that this reminded me of, and, and this has more to do with the media manipulation angle, and when I went to look it up, I found out it was released the same year, 1957, is Sweet Smell of Success. And, oh, yeah. And I was just thinking that it's like, man, these films, both of these films, Face in the Crowd, Sweet Smell of Success, really cynical. And much more cynical and, you know, observant than really I think what we give that era credit for, at least looking back on it. I mean, we didn't grow up there. But, you know, we are all born when we were born, but we weren't living in the 1950s. So maybe it was a little bit more of a dark and cynical period than what's presented as this, you know, good old uh, post-World War II, everything's happy. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk a lot more about Sweet Smell of Success when we talk about um – Death to Smoochie in December, because that was a movie that, according to Adam Resnick, just totally informed Death to Smoochie. So, yeah, we'll definitely be talking more about that. I'm looking looking forward to going back and rewatching that one. Is there anything more we need to say about this one? Of the three, this is the one I have the, the leaf on. And this was the one, I don't know, <laughs> it, it's... Uh, it's interesting that this is the one that I go back to most often. It's like when I told uh, my wife that we were going to be doing these movies, she's like, Oh, you're going to watch a face in the crowd again. And it's like, yeah, sorry. (laughs) And it's funny because I don't know how often I make it to the end of the film, but I have seen the beginning of this movie so many times. And I guess I just love the way that it builds and builds and builds and the way that we see his career kind of taking off and the logical progression of the steps and seeing him as that manipulator 
so early on. I mean, even when he's getting his first offer to come to Memphis and be on television, when he starts doing that good old boy act and he's just like, well, how about I take nothing and we see how it works out. And if it doesn't work out, then nobody's, you know, any the worse for wear and nobody. Yet. And then he just he knows that he's going to nail it when he gets out there on, on television, and just take the world by storm and then be able to demand however much money that he wants. And it is just a, a classic, a master performance, and uh, if you haven't seen it, you should check it out. The Andy Griffin performance is, it blows you away, especially since the first time I saw it, I was only familiar with him from Matlock and the Andy Griffin show. It was just almost unbelievable the first time you see it. Well, there are those really dark Matlock episodes, like the one where he went on that killing spree and then used the law to like cover it up. But I know that a lot of people don't remember that season just because it was so dark. Well, I think they pulled that one from syndication. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you're messing with me or not. Just messing with you. Just kidding. See, what didn't he do that? Didn't he do that show where he was a serial killer who only killed other serial killers? Isn't that what we're talking about? I think he was a serial killer who only killed girls named Marsha Jan or Cindy. And he was, um, what was it? The, uh, you're thinking of Don Knotts. Oh, that's right. Yep. Don Knotts landing. Anyhow, let's move on to, uh, the, you know, only the projection booth. I just got to say this real quick. Only the projection booth would do a Herschel Gordon Lewis film and not do anything that has any blood in it. It's like, what is wrong with us over here, Mike? I don't know. No blood, but there were some good boobs in it. Well, there you go. Okay, so it's the year of the Yahoo, 1972, Herschel Gordon Lewis. Time was when the old time political bosses would pick the candidates, but no more. Today, communications win elections, not candidates. We're going to pick the next senator, and we're going to put him over through television. This is a year of the Yahoo. And who's the candidate the computer picks to run? Thank you very much, friends, for letting us come into your home today. And remember, until we meet again, we're all part of the story. We're all behind old glory. There's much more that each of us can do. Sweet land of liberty. I'm with Famous country and western singer Claude King playing the part of Hank Jackson, the singer picked to be senator. Who do you think buys my record? <laughs> the same people who will vote for you. Morons! Well, we'll be the laughing stock of American politics. I don't think so, Governor. Have you seen some of the men in the Senate? I love this like a chugging on a thundering down the track. Diesel pumps are spewing all the smoke is falling black. And God himself he But when Hank Jackson strikes out to be senator, he strikes out in a different way with his girlfriend. I said shut your mouth! I don't think we better see Jackson after the election. But the shows, the people, they expect to see you. That is exactly why I won't be there. 
When Hank throws out the experts and decides to run his own campaign, he has tough sledding. Well, naturally, no one likes violence. But sometimes, unfortunately, people get what they ask for. Just a minute, Mr. Jackson. What is your solution to the local housing problem? Well, uh, well, you do have a point there. And, uh, I... Well, nobody's perfect. And, uh, I... Well, you, uh... And when Hank decides to get involved in the issues, he wishes he had the experts back. It's all there in the motion picture geared to the 1970s. The year of the Yahoo. Come on, kid. Shake it over here. Uh, you know, you might be uh, pretty good at electing a senator, but a hippopotamus is better at lovemaking. The year of the Yahoo. Who? Yahoo! See, and there's no blood, and maybe that's why this is his only film that didn't turn a profit. Well, you know, I one can understand what he was trying to do, um, and I, I give him uh, a thumbs up for it. At, at times, for my first impressions of watching Year of the Yahoo, um, I don't think the production quality is as good as it should be. Uh, at times, it right. seems a little rougher than his other films, and the uh, the acting seems a little amateurish compared to you know it, it almost seems like a throwback to 10 years earlier where he was really you know first learning to do it but um i i think there's a lot of things in here that are really interesting and in a way kind of plays on the ideas that were going on at that time when you talk about sort of this uh counterculture versus sort of the the mainstream and um so mike why don't uh, we get into uh, our first impressions in the plot yeah, first impressions for me, kind of like you, I just was amazed at how cheap this movie looked. And I don't expect lavish production uh, from Herschel Gordon-Lewis. You know, I'm I'm a big fan of Blood Feast. Um, I've seen several of his other films. For some reason, the one that I always go back to is Jimmy the the Boy Wonder, or was it Wonder Boy? The one that was kind of like a, a a bunch of footage that he took and kind of mashed it together with this other story. Like it was uh, cartoons mixed with this other story that was all shot in Florida. And it is just bizarre and um, upsetting. Like if I was a little kid, I think I would probably start crying if my parents made me watch this film. But this one, yeah, it felt... Kind of like uh, I could almost see the paneling move when people would like walk around the room, kind of thing. It just felt like it was all just kind of strung together. But I, despite that, I was right there when it came to this movie. I again, we have this kind of rise and fall of this. Um, not necessarily a politician. I like the way that they. It's more of the behind the scenes guys trying to find the perfect candidate and manipulate him while they're manipulating the people who are, you know, going to the polls. And I, I found that to be uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I can, I can agree that um, the look of this film uh, is definitely on the cheap side. And the editing is for some reason, some of the worst editing I've seen, even in a Herschel Gordon Lewis film. But there's something about like, once you get through the opening photo montage and song, um, something actually sucks you in with the characters. And whereas 
I agree it's one of the best acting in a Herschel Gordon Lewis film. It's some of the most interesting characters in a Herschel Gordon Lewis film. Yeah, it's definitely that. I mean, at times it almost has this, like, I, I think the reason for why I had the attitude I have is that outside of a few shots, specifically the, the last shot in the film, it just seems like the camera's very static and it has sort of this almost like community theater aspect where it's just, all right, just lock off the camera and let them talk amongst each other. And then the sound sounds like it's recorded from the other side of the room. It's very hollow. <laughs> and then... Yeah. um in, in things like that. Now, I like the the way that this one is a little bit different than, say, the, the one we just talked about, Facing the Crowd, where you have this guy who's a country singer, and they're looking for a candidate, and they happen upon him, and then they manipulate him to do all these things, and then he sort of has this change of heart in that, well, maybe I'm going down the wrong path here, and I'm being used. And the idea of these you know, spin doctor type guys and you know press handlers and all of that stuff sort of calling the shots instead of the candidate which i think um is very sort of poignant and spot on when we talk about today's politics so i mean and this is a 42 year old film there's also a very interesting thing that i had not realized um the first couple times i saw this film years ago but when i sat down to rewatch it the fact that in the first, like, five minutes in the film, you have a, you know, considered liberal candidate complaining about the police enforcement of stop-and-frisk laws and indefinite detention. Yeah, talk about pressure, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I really like the way that Claude King, um, the Hank Jackson character, the way that he tries to, you know, even as a musical story, the way that he tries to sing his own songs at first, and then they kind of start writing the songs for him and will play those damn songs over and over again. Rob, you had problems with the music from Liquid Sky. I was uh, getting a little tired of some of the songs in this one. <laughs> I did the one of the things I really liked about this movie though too is not only do you have um the Hank Jackson character in his advisors and the way that they're trying to manipulate him but then also the whole story of his wife and that kind of like I don't want to call her a scarlet woman I I kind of want to call her like an azure woman because she has that amazing amount of blue eyeshadow that's just kind of going across her face but that whole like jealousy subplot that's going on, I found to be very interesting as well. And I was really glad that she had the, that gob of uh, eye makeup going all over the place because otherwise I think I might have kind of gotten the women confused a little bit just because I really couldn't hear too much difference in their voice and they were about the same height kind of thing. So I was really glad that I could at least tell them apart by the eyeshadow. Am I wrong? No. No, no. I, <laughs> no, that's why you got silence on the line. Okay. <laughs> yeah, ne- neither of us were arguing that point. Okay, good. But one of the things uh, in here is, um, like I said, this uh, the, the 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 songs. Um, you you complain about the songs. I actually don't mind them in here. <laughs> You're like, really? Like you have a problem with repetitive songs, but in here you don't have a problem with it. And I think the reason why I, I liked it was because it it's almost like the film's parodying itself. It's almost commenting on itself. And what I mean by that is, um, I was reminded of another sort of political film was Wag the Dog. And they keep showing those political ads that they've come up with for the president's reelection campaign. And in here, there's this one, this hope ad, 
which mm. I, I, I didn't know that the Obama campaign had stolen from Year of the Yahoo. It's amazing. Lost? Hank Jackson knows the way back. Let's all get back of Hank. But there's like this hope image and song and all this. And they show it like five times in a row, but they keep truncating it and showing you only certain aspects of it. And it almost seems like, in a way, uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis and his editor were just kind of like having fun with it and, and playing up the ridiculousness of having to see these ads over and over and over again. Yeah, whereas I, I did point out that I thought some of the editing was sloppy, um, I think there are some fantastic ideas in the editing um, or in how they use the editing in storytelling, how they, they would show them shooting the commercial, and then when you thought you were watching them shoot the end shot, you were actually watching the commercial. And then they kind of did the same thing when they kept showing him do his TV show but then they cut and you realize, oh, they're shooting another promotional thing. That was good. That one really did take me by surprise when you think it is what's really happening. And then the guy's like, wait, 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 hold on, let's go back. And then he starts directing everyone. Was that was that uh, Ray Sager who was kind of directing that? Uh, yes. Okay. He was great. His Sid Angelo character was terrific. And you could tell that he seemed to be one of the most experienced actors on the set because whenever he was on, I was kind of glued to him and what he was saying. Yep. And I believe he was also, um, he was also the assistant director of the film, I believe. Well, there you go. And he was helping direct all those, uh, uh, Hank Jackson groupies. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, one thing well, I, I was going to point out, um, an interesting through line going from face in the crowd into year of the Yahoo is, uh, Face in the Crowd showed Lonesome Roads getting involved in marketing and exposed what marketing was like at the time, which um, Year of the Yahoo, that was a major part of Year of the Yahoo. And I also find it funny that when they were shooting um, some of his spots, they kept cutting away to the uh, automated laughter loop. Ha, right. Yeah. <laughs> I really like the section where they're shooting that commercial and I mean, it's, it's cheesy as hell at times, but at other times I really appreciated what they were doing as far as, you know, not showing him on the horse and kind of concentrating more on the, the guys who were shooting the commercial and uh, just some of those corny bits where like he shoots the snake, but it's actually a cable for the camera and everything that all worked for me. I don't know why, you know, normally I'd be like, Oh, that's so cheesy, but it really, that worked, that section especially worked for me. Hmm. Because it was also believable for the character he was playing. Right. Yeah. In that disgust that the uh, guys who were shooting the commercial, I guess I, I just could empathize with them having been in similar situations. <laughs> You've shot some commercials like that? A few times, but nothing where I've had to deal with uh, horses. <laughs> so let's go ahead and take a break and play an interview with director and co-writer of the year of the Yahoo, Herschel Gordon-Lewis. Hi, I'm Mark. 
And you know what? I'm Mike. And we're the host of the Hollywood Upside Down podcast. We are the only podcast that looks at the films of Fred Olin Ray and Jim Wynorski exclusively on a year-by-year basis. Every episode, we present the news surrounding the world of these two legendary filmmakers. And we also try to speak with the many people involved with the films we discuss. Speaking of films, we generally talk about three to four films per episode by reviewing and rating them. If you want to find out what those films are, visit our website at hollywoodupsidedown.wordpress. You can download our show via iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, by searching for Hollywood Upside Down. So if you're a fan of B-movies and you know you are or you wouldn't be listening to us, chances are you've seen some of the films of Fred Olin Ray and Jim Wynorski. So why don't you join us from episode to episode and relive some of those favorite movie moments. The moments you'll hear on the Hollywood Upside Down podcast. Honestly, the real reason we watch these films is we love watching boobs. We sure do. Lots of large, small, flappy, flapjacky. No, Mike. No, no, no. Very well-endowed, boisterous, giant, jiggly boobs. Those two. Yes. One dark and stormy night in the mid-80s, Joe Bob Briggs, Harlan Ellison, and the ghost of El Santo pulled a train on Elvira while Siskel and Ebert sobbingly masturbated in the corner. From that union arose the greatest movie critic and luchador that ever lived. But we're not going to talk about him. He's kind of a dick. Instead, we're going to talk about me, El Goro, the stuttering movie fan and host of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Every week on Talk Without Rhythm, I discuss two to three movies tangentially tied together by a theme. I cover action. And the most complete fighter in the world. Sci-fi. Open the pod bay doors, Hell. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Horror. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. And the continuing adventures of James Spader, sexual deviant. You're not worried that I'm going to fuck you, are you? I'm not interested in that, and I'm waste. Now pull up your skirt. So check me out at TWORpodcast.blogspot.com, drunkenzombie.com, or subscribe on iTunes. Talk Without Rhythm, the only podcast that will not attract the world. Adios. Christopher Media, the Weedsman Podcast. All right, man, it's time. It's time. Are we ready for the list? The list. So we all made this list earlier. We sat around. Uh, maybe yeah. got a, maybe got a little too high. Well, you making know, this list. We, we did get too high because we only made half the list. <laughs> <laughs> the Weedsman Podcast every Friday on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Let me ask you a question: Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B. 
O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hi, this is Kevin Batchelder. And this is the Saturday B-Movie Reel. Do something. Shoot it. Shoot it. <laughs> That's about describes it. Yeah. All right, everybody stay here. We look specifically at the Sci-Fi Channel's original movies. You know the ones. The ones that air on Saturday night. Being known throughout the ages is an instant classic. <laughs> we need a bigger gator! Uh, limb cutting yes. and blood squirting from... <laughs> Flying limbs, I called them. it in my notes. What could go wrong? We look on a regular basis at the movies as they come out, and since there have been over 200 of them, we do go back and look at many of them that are now out on DVD. At this point, I had completely forgotten any semblance of seeing if this actually makes any sense from a plot point of view. So come on by, get involved, and have some fun. Check us out at SaturdayBMovieReel.com. Our future depends on it. Make it safe. I'm just a plain old country boy. I'm one of them musicians. And I can't make you promises like them slick politicians. I'm kissing every baby that's a way to stop inflation. And cussing out the red Chinese for international relations. Oh, everybody in our land gets more and more and more. When we begin to run this country like a country store. I am hoping you can tell me about Year of the Yahoo. With election season coming up, we are going to be talking about that and a few other election-themed films. All right, well, have you seen this movie? Oh, yes. Oh, oh God. Well, there, there goes the fragment of my reputation. Uh, Year <laughs> of the Yahoo is about a country and western singer who runs for uh, public office. And I'll tell you the background of this, and I don't know how far you want to go into that, because it's been a lot of years, and I can't trust my flagging memory. But we had a fellow named Claude King, and Claude King had had one hit country and western song called Wolverton Mountain. They say don't go on Wolverton Mountain if you're looking for a wife, cause Clifton Clowers has a pretty young daughter he's mighty handy with a gun and a knife her tender lips i never thought that wolverton mountain was that much of a uh, breakthrough in country and western music because it didn't quite scan but that was not my decision to make he was a very nice fellow and it came about because someone had said to me for this movie, where we really wanted a country and western singer to take the role, get Roger Miller. Now, Roger Miller had had a tremendous hit at that time called Dang Me. I don't know if you ever heard that song. Gotta take a rope and hang me, yeah. Oh, that's the one, yeah. In fact, it's what it did was stimulate a whole bunch of satires. Some uh, female comedian recorded a song called Durn Ya, Durn Ya, They Ought to Take a Chair and Burn Ya. <laughs> it was really very funny. But when I began to get into this, and as you are certainly aware, or we wouldn't be having this conversation, the line between 
almost no budget movies and well-financed movies is a very heavy line. And I did not dare take a risk in which anything that ha might have to do with money's going down the drain would apply to talent. Immediately upon uh, making it clear that I wanted to make a deal with Roger Miller, I began to get phone calls. This is before the days of emails. I'm sure I would today I'd have been swamped with emails. I had communications. I had every kind of warning saying, Roger Miller is a, a junkie. Uh, he may or may not show up on the set, and if he does show up on the set, you have no guarantee that he will be able to perform. And that scared me. And that really was the genesis of how I happened to be in contact with Claude King, who was really an old-fashioned gentleman. You don't find that kind of person anymore. But there was one other element involved in this, and that was that Claude King had said to me that he had a contract with the CBS television, or CBS network somewhere, which almost guaranteed any song he recorded would be released through CBS. And that, that had <laughs> my blood pressure racing because I had a song for this movie which was called uh, Juggernaut. Uh, my life was like a juggernaut is running down the track. And it, it, anyone who heard it seemed to be, at least of course, that you tend to uh, be very nice to people whom you want to impress. Uh, everyone who heard Juggernaut said, hey, that's a winner. You can get it recorded properly. Well, here was Claude King. How could I miss? Claude King came complete with backup personnel, all of whom uh, seemed to be of the ancient generation when they weren't just people flipping around from place to place. They were serious musicians. And I found that to be an, uh, quite a, a benefit. So we made a deal with Claude King to take the leading role in uh, Year of the Yahoo. And that's how it came to be. Well, obviously, as uh, history has shown, nothing much happened to Juggernaut, or for that matter, to Claude King. The movie itself did not do poorly at all, because it was right in the middle. And theaters that normally would not play my kind of junk uh, would accept Year of the Yahoo because it didn't have, first of all, there was not one four-letter word in that movie. And second, Claude King, although he certainly wasn't what I'd call a top box office draw, uh, there was nothing about him that was negative. So I can't complain about the way the movie was received, although it was not, I wouldn't put it in the top five of the movies I made. The movie is listed as being written by Alan Kahn. Yes. Alan Kahn was a... Years and years ago, long before you or anybody else was born, I was teaching at Roosevelt University in Chicago as an adjunct lecturer. Alan Kahn was a very bright young student. I was teaching advertising. We called it then mass communications. And Alan Kahn was one of my students. And somehow or other in conversation, he wanted to write a screenplay. I said, all right. Uh, he then came to work for me. In fact, I think Alan Kahn worked for me for about a year. But there was, this was not a made-up name. There was someone named Alan Kahn, and he did write the screenplay. He wrote most of it, I should say, for Year of the Yahoo, as was my pattern during that period. I would always, <laughs> I would always rewrite everything. But a uh, very talented young man. I'm sure by now he's no longer a talented young man. Let's hope he's still talented. He, 
he could still be talented or he could be in the box like many of the people I've done business with. <laughs> How did the the idea for the movie come about? I, I have no answer to that question. We During my period of heavy production, almost every day I'd be talking to various people in the movie industry about what we might produce that would get some sort of a playoff. See, that, that then, and really is pretty much true today, was the the key to independent production. At that time, there was no such thing, not just of DVDs. There were no videotapes. So you made it in the theater or not at all. Now, how, as somebody with a no-budget movie, could I come in and compete with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Universal and Fox and Paramount? Answer, by putting together a movie that enough people would go to see that the theater, by paying a lower percentage to the producer, could have everybody coming out. And that, that was the intention. And that was, that was the nature of all these discussions, whether it was a splatter movie or one or something was slightly off the beaten track. At that time, too, my ego was considerably bigger than it is today. <laughs> and I felt that I had been really mining the deep caverns of what we now call splatter movies. I, was, I call, just called them glory movies. And it was time to move up, which is a terrible mistake that many people do make, because what they tend to do is become victims of the Peter principle and go beyond their area of capability. But that had to be part of it, or I wouldn't have made that movie. <laughs> what was it like working with Claude King? How was he on set? How was it, what was the last on set? Oh, he was, yes. he was absolutely a dream to work with. He knew his lines. He didn't argue anything. He didn't say, why the is this thing in this movie? Uh, I wish everybody on a set were like Claude King. I remember that that relationship fondly, although subsequent to actually making the movie, I've never, I have had no further contact with him of any sort. And how many of the songs were his versus what you had written? I, I think I wrote them all. I didn't want to pay anybody any royalties. It wasn't a matter of ego here. I did that with every movie I made. I wrote uh, 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 the uh, South Gonna Rise Again for 2000 Maniacs. I wrote The Pill. I, 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 I wrote almost every, every piece of music, including not just the songs, often the background music, for example, in Blood Feast. And the reason I did was purely economical. I did not want to pay somebody more than it cost to make the movie in order to get a piece of music. I felt that was insane. How was the movie received when it came out? With respect, it, it was, I say it wasn't a big winner, but nobody said, I'm yanking that movie on Wednesday instead of Friday, which is the ultimate insult to an independent movie. I think it's pretty great, by the way. I just wanted to put that out there. That's very kind of you. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with it, and I really enjoyed kind of the rise and fall of this character. I thought it was uh, really well done. Well, we had a smash, I remember, we had a smash of guitar <laughs> in a scene in there. And I had to find a guitar that was smashable. At the time, I was a guitar picker myself, and it bothered me to do that. <laughs> There's only one scene of nudity. Was that kind of in there so you could kind of take it out for certain markets and then put it back in for others? Had to be. I don't even recall such a scene. Uh, there was just some topless stuff going on with the... Uh, 
with one of the ladies. That had to be added later. I do not recall that scene. Do you have CDs of your work? Did they ever put out records of your stuff? I have CDs of many of my work. Now, there's a fellow in California named Jim Maslin, M-A-S-L-O-N, who literally has built a career around buying up my old movies. I thought there was some insanity in it. Jimmy is one of the nicest people in the movie business. And he now owns about, oh, 18 or 20 of my old movies. And if you want to get in touch with him, send me an email. I will email you in return his online address. And I'll contact him saying you're going to contact that if, if this interests you. Yeah. You're going to be in touch with him because he has a lot of the stuff that I don't have anymore. Now, you only made the one more film after this, and then you kind of took a break from directing for a while. Is that right? The Gore Gore Girls was after this one? The Gore Gore Girls, I felt, was going to be my last movie. It shows how cloudy the crystal ball can be. <laughs> because when I came roaring back onto the scene, I, right now as I'm sitting here, I'm looking at some stuff. I just, just finished shooting my segment of a movie up in Canada, in Calgary, which is called Herschel Gordon Lewis's Blood Mania. And that's a case in which the province of Alberta, I think, where Calgary is located, has helped finance this movie. And I'm very pleased with what I've seen so far. So I am by no means retired, because if nothing else, I'm still in the advertising business, which forces me to stay abreast of what's going on in the world. That's terrific. Well, good. I was going to ask you about Blood Mania, so I'm glad you told me about it before I even had to ask. <laughs> okay, well, there, there is, what bothers me about it, there was a movie made back in 1970 called Blood Mania. I want no association with that because apparently it was a real dog. And Jim Sato, James S-A-I-T-O, who is the producer of, of my movie, uh, quite deliberately chose to remake that title, although uh, I've never seen the original Blood Mania and have no intention of looking at it. But from what I can make out online, uh, it was fairly ghastly. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm still having a good time about your question. Excellent. Terrific. Yeah, what else are you up to? Do you have any other movie projects in the work? Well, I've got a thing here called Bloody Bucket List. And the reason I have is because I'm getting inquiries, and as you are certainly aware, you wouldn't even have any interest in Mira Viahu. It's a very strange business in which the, the projects that you anticipate coming to life die. The projects you write off saying there's no chance here are the ones that live. So just in case, I'm ready to go whenever somebody wants to say wants to, to go with, with bloody bucket list. I also have a script that I thought we were going to be in production on by now called Mr. Bruce and the Gore Machine. But that, now there's a case that hasn't materialized. But since I love the, I love the business, I really do. I love being, sitting there and saying, roll sound, cut. <laughs> it gives you a feeling of mastery. But, <laughs> so if it happens, fine. If it doesn't, I'm still quite comfortable. Everybody in our land gets more and more and more. When we begin to run this country like a country store, we'll have more schools, we'll have less crime, there won't be any taxes. Just vote for me and soon you'll see how everyone relaxes. 
thanks to Mr. Lewis for joining us. You can find out more about Year of the Yahoo and other rocking and rolling political films we're talking about this week at projection-booth.com. So this brings us to the most recent of the three. Well, I guess 22 years ago is most recent. Bob Roberts. America is a mess. We need someone to clean it up. And his name is Bob. Bob Roberts, millionaire businessman, fencing enthusiast, recording artist, and senatorial candidate. He was a man that not only had a brilliant mind and a wonderful wit, but could also sing. This land is my land. Bob has a great vision for the future of our country and a great vision for the future of the children of our country. Hey, mister. Can I see your gun? He's amazing. He's a poet and a genius. Ladies and gentlemen, why can't you get ahead? She's a beautiful girl. Why can't you have the home of your dreams? Miss Three Mile Island. Wall Street. Wall Street. The 60s are over, said Roberts. I couldn't agree more, Donna. I'm sorry, but I wouldn't vote for you. My life depended on it. Are you a communist? Excuse me? Paramount Pictures presents with Miramax Films, Bob Roberts, a man with a solution. Choice to be what you want to be, and I want to be rich. That's what politics is really about. Make your judgments if you must. Bob Roberts. Because Bob spelled backwards is still Bob. I just wish there was a way I could vote for you a hundred times. Oh, there is, actually. <laughs> really? Yes. Just kidding. <laughs> So, Bob Roberts, 1992, Tim Robbins, not only directs, but also stars as the uh, title role of Bob Roberts. And uh, sadly, I haven't seen sort of where Bob Roberts came from. It came from a uh, Saturday Night Live skit in the mid-80s that Tim Robbins did. And then I guess this sort of developed along the track of sort of uh, taking a political film and instead of trying to tell a a narrative like the other two that we talked about, uh, Facing the Crowd and You're the Yahoo!, Sort of creating this, like I guess, like Spinal Tap kind of uh, pseudo documentary. Well, I think it was very telling that he thanks Robert Altman in the end credits, and that Alan Nichols is one of the guys who's actually in the movie. He is the director, uh, not the producer, not the Bob Balaban role, but he's the director of the SNL-ish show that Bob Roberts goes on. And Nichols had worked with Altman quite a bit on the whole Tanner series. And so I think that Robbins was really kind of playing um, off of the Tanner stuff with that because that was very much this um, mockumentary political campaign, political uh, drama that they had uh, for – I want to say that there were a couple different incarnations of that. So I really think that – that was also kind of adding to it. And then I know, Josh, um, you know, you're, you're saying that uh, you're the Yahoo fueled some of that as well. So I can see him definitely taking a lot from some of the people that have gone before and uh, using that um, pseudo documentary style, I think was great. And what was kind of scary to me was watching this. I had never seen this film before, but I had seen other films that looked like this, uh, i.e. real campaign-ish type films, such as um, 
a perfect candidate, the Oliver North uh, documentary that came out four years after this, where they talked about how North had been groomed and kind of put up on, you know, as a candidate. And that kind of falls apart a little bit too, what with Iran Contra. So it was just kind of like, okay, yeah, I mean, this was what? Released in 92, it was set in 1990, and just all of those events from like 88 to 92 seem to be fueling this quite a bit. And then the Oliver North one was kind of looking back in time, so it was uh, kind of scary to compare those two things. And the only thing to sort of add on here, and I forgot to mention it in the first part, is that you know he's not a candidate like any other normal candidate. He, no. he is a... Uh, Wall Street guy who happened to be a sort of, I guess, the uh, funhouse mirror version of a Bob Dylan or a uh, Woody Guthrie type, where instead of being sort of a pro, you know, everyone get together and share it, it's like, no, I'm writing songs about how my grandmother felt bad about being rich, and I'm writing songs about how, you know, we should kill people who use drugs, and and all of this, like, real arch, far-right stuff and one of the fascinating things about Bob Roberts when I looked it up years ago was that Tim Robbins never released a soundtrack album to Bob Roberts although all of these songs were I guess written by him and part of the reason that I read was he was afraid that someone like Rush Limbaugh who was coming into his own in 92 uh, would play the songs on his show now you can get you know, if, if you were to pull audio from the film, you would get most of the track. But you'll notice that there's really like no complete songs throughout the entire film. And I think he was trying to to do that on purpose because he the, the stuff is really satirical when you look at it, especially when they show you the album covers and they're all variants on Bob Dylan album covers. Yeah, I think the only complete song is that Wall Street rap, and yeah, otherwise. The really, to me, the biting, the most biting songs seem to have the most cutaways. (laughs) And I had read that um, when the film came out, a soundtrack album had been announced, and that he then um, had had it kind of canceled, claiming that that the the songs could only be heard in context. And he had actually, um, well, it was he and his brother who had written um, a lot of these songs. And then apparently one of the songs was actually kind of a, uh, a more polished draft of one of the songs that he wrote when he was doing tape heads. So if folks aren't familiar with tape heads, I highly recommend you go back and listen to our episode on that. It was uh, definitely a lot of fun to record that episode. We've got um, interviews with the director and the writer of that one. And uh, again... He's pulling, um, Tim Robbins is pulling a lot of the folks that he's worked with before kind of into this and folks from the actor studio. So I was just blown away when, um, you know, you turn around and, oh, it's James Spader. Oh, it's Fred Ward. You know, I I expect Susan Sarandon to show up because they were an item at the time or shortly thereafter for a long time. But, uh, yeah, I was just like, whoa, what, what is this guy doing here? And then seeing Jack Black is like, you know, this little kid almost in this movie. It's like, what the hell? Yeah, Jack Black, Ray Wise, Alan Rickman, uh, just an amazing cast of people who, you know, at the time weren't huge. Like a lot of them were not big then. And like you were saying, Jack Black, it's, it, 
he's rather thin and he's wearing a trench coat most of the time. And if you didn't like, if someone didn't really like point it out to you or you really looked close, you might not be able to recognize that it's him. Cause I think he's only like 20. Anyway, th- this is my son, Roger. Hi, Roger. And his two friends, we got all the, Kevin. Both oh. album. Hi. 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 Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got a band. We actually, we play some of your songs. We play retake America and mm-hmm. this land was made. You have a band. Oh, what, what instrument do you play? Guitar. I'll play guitar. Yeah. I must admit that when young Roger first wanted his guitar, my husband and I were fit as birds. <laughs> but my husband trusted that his son would take the lessons of the Lord with him, no matter what instrument of the devil caressed his hand. Other than seeing him with that buzzed hair in Mars Attacks, I've never seen him with that kind of more right-wingish look. You know, usually it's the long hair and just kind of letting it go. Uh, I think I was most excited this time when I sat down and saw Tom Atkins pop up on screen. Yeah, he was great. I was so surprised to see him playing the doctor of uh, of Bob Roberts. And just what was that kind of stuff going on there? It's great that he's got his handlers. You know, we've got Ray Wise is always around him as this Chet McGregor character. And then Alan Rickman with those amazing glasses that he has as Lucas Hart III, who's... (laughs) just so into the dirty politics and everything and and you know the the uh the running guns for drugs and everything but you know it's all under the guise of patriotism so to see those and then i was laughing out loud you know we have talked about gore vidal so many times on the show now and to see him show up as the political rival uh senator brickley paste i was like oh wow you know now i can see why rob likes this movie oh and gore vidal is so good in here and i love i love how the whole sort of invasion of iraq and are we going to go to Iraq, is in there. Well, Mr. Bob Roberts suggested that he knew which way I was leaning on the question of war in the Middle East, and I'm totally opposed to it. So it's the enemy of the month club again. Saddam Hussein, I believe, is the most evil man. What did the president say since Adolf Hitler? Before that, there was Noriega. He was the most evil man since Fu Manchu. Then there was Gaddafi, and then there's Castro. And these figures are thrown out through the media and made into great monsters. Why? Because we must justify the military budget. In order to do that, you must have enemies. So we blow up these local thugs into these huge Hitler-like figures and pretend it's World War II all over again. It's just a great performance that he gives in here. And, you know, he wasn't really known as an actor. He's basically just kind of playing himself. And it's it's so good. It's so right on. And the whole thing with his controversy where... And I don't know what the real story is, and I kind of like that I don't know. I don't know if he really was with this younger woman or really if it is his story as far as there's this picture of him with this woman getting out of his car and his granddaughter was allegedly in the back seat. And I love that he just says that straight out, you know, almost immediately upon this story breaking. And they're constantly, the news is constantly saying who was accused of this, who was accused. And they're just constantly bringing it up. And, you know, it's that whole planting the doubt in my mind. But that's the, the, the dirty tricks thing that plays into that's this. That's what they do. And this is where, like you were saying, that whole era of, um, basically the the eighties and into the early nineties of, of how that plays in the background. And there's a great documentary called Boogeyman 
about Lee Atwater. And Lee Atwater was a Republican political campaign guy. He was the guy who got Bush the first elected, and he worked in on Reagan's campaign. and And if you remember during the uh, the, the Bush Dukakis campaign, there was a lot of this, you know, the Willie Horton ad and all of that stuff, and. He was like the architect of all that. He was the architect, Lee Atwater, of all of these, you know, things that are done now in campaigns that people don't even bat an eye at. But back then it was like considered, whoa, like this is really, you know, dark and cynical. And when he died, supposedly, he like asked for forgiveness <laughs> for all of the <laughs> nasty political shit that he did. And hey, Carl Rove take note. Yeah. Well know? he Carl Rove was like one of his assistants. So, oh, God. so there's a great documentary. You should check it out. It was on PBS like five years ago. It's called Boogeyman. And if you want to know anything about that kind of thing, that's all in there. The other thing that's interesting about Bob Roberts, and I think I didn't notice it the first time I saw it. I was like, oh, yeah, well, he's a Wall Street guy and all this stuff, is sort of how the corporate candidate is really heavy in this. It's, it's about a guy who has a lot of money and and all of that stuff. And I was thinking like – Although he's not that hip, as hip as, as Bob Roberts, the, the character is in this film, I was thinking like a Mitt Romney, you know, like this investment banker guy who's always talking about Wall Street. He's always on his cell phone, buy, sell, all that stuff, you know. And it's like today we don't bat an eye at that because we expect these investment banker types to, to get involved, where you have the Gore Vidal character who's the old school guy who's like, I'm in public service because I want to like help the people and I want to do all of this good things, you know, and take care of the country and invest money to help the homeless. And so it's uh, sort of this shift that you see away from sort of the idea of public service and more towards sort of like corporate stuff in this film, which, like I said, today it's like it's so obvious. It's like we don't even think about it. I also wanted to say, in regard to the uh, Senator Paste quote-unquote controversy, um, it, it was always in question to me, given the fact that what we are watching is supposed to be a documentary about Bob Roberts' campaign, so they're only going to be put in, putting things in that make him look better. Right. Yeah. Yeah, if this was uh, the... Bugs Raplin or Raplin uh, documentary, then he would probably be exposing all of the lies that are, you know, just kind of taken, um, you know, at face value in this documentary. Though I do like that, you know, the most dynamic character in the film is the filmmaker, who you barely see, and, but yet you see him starting to question some of these things as he goes along, and his kind of confession towards the end that he's not really sure he likes Bob Roberts. Is you know to me is is the most telling part of this, but yeah, you're right, Rob. This is like so indicative of what was happening with politics at this time, and really what has set the stage so much. I mean, you talked about Boogeyman. I would say that people need to look at Bush's Brain, the documentary about Karl Rove, and just to see all the dirty tricks that he has been playing over the years. I mean, and it just goes on and on and on. So yeah, it's like. Now, looking, you had mentioned the investment banker thing. I mean, now it's like, oh, well, this guy knows what he's talking about because he's made a lot of money. And you can't trust the guy who doesn't have a lot of money is the way that it seems like we're kind of 
you know, fitting these people into this narrative now. And it's like, well, um, you know, they're kind of making a lot of money off of other people's mistakes or off of, in this movie, it seems very much like insider information. There's the one part where he's talking about how, you know, I had this information and it was very valuable. And it's like, okay, well, who gave you that? And that sure sounds like somebody gave you information that you shouldn't necessarily have had. Well, not only that, but, you know, you get the feeling that that might be quote unquote insider trading. Or, right. And then the other one is these right-wing guys making money off the government. They were oh, supposed yeah. to get, you know, like the whole point that Giancarlo Esposito's character is that they were supposed to use these loans to build housing projects and low-income housing for people. But instead, they used it to do this whole top-secret, you know, operation in Central America and how that was related to the drug trade and all of this stuff. So it's really about how people will manipulate the system in order to make the money because really money knows no left or right. It only knows what it knows in that way. (laughs) On this whole, like, the failed SNL, I mean, hearing this in this movie from 1992, I'm like, well, the failed SNLs, they led to this, which led to the junk bonds, which led to the bubble, which led to the housing crisis. And it's just like, so we've been fucked for all these years. And this movie is just, you know, kind of like, oh, yeah, and by the way, this is where a lot of this stuff was at at this particular time. And it's like, oh. And, and when you compare the SNL scandal of the 80s against an, you know, an AIG or, you know, Bear Stearns or any of those other like 2007, 2008 Wall Street market crash stuff. It's like a pittance. It's nothing. Oh, yeah. It's it's cute. It's quaint. (laughs) Yeah. He's talking about how he got out before the crash, which was what, 87, which was a blip in the radar compared to what happened, you know, all these years later. Sorry, I feel like I'm standing in a soapbox right now, but this is this movie just the whole time I'm just like, oh man, you know, and I was just amazed at you know what they were saying back then and that they were, you know, th- this movie is so self-aware. It's not like they're saying these things and we're just like, oh yeah, wow, if they only knew then what we know now. No, they knew it then and they're pointing out how shitty things were then. But then it that it just continued to get worse and worse and worse. It's like, oh, fuck, man. We have just been over this barrel for so many fucking years. You were discussing how this was partially you know, representative of the rise of the corporate candidate. Right. And I found that that was another interesting through line from Mir Yahoo to Bob Roberts, where, you know, with Bob Roberts, you got, you know, the corporate flashy candidate going against the more old-fashioned and presumably liberal um, Senator Pace. With Mir Yahoo, you have the high-profile celebrity candidate of Hank Jackson being put up against Senator Burwell, who comes off as very plain and rigid, but everything that he's saying is much more in line with what the people would probably want. Well, this whole kind of confusion, too, and I put confusions in maybe just single quotes instead of double, the confusion of the Bob Roberts, the folk singer, versus Bob Roberts, the candidate, and how that kind of comes to a head when they do this um, SNL-ish type show where he is on there doing 
a political song and the one woman just goes nuts. It's like, how can you do this? How can you have this candidate on here? You know, there's such things as equal airtime and all this kind of stuff. And then that line, oh my God, Bob Balaban, when he says, You can't fucking do this. The network reviewed the material and they want it out. Oh, how dare you? This is obscene. This is a fucking commercial for a fucking political candidate. You've got nothing left, I You're nothing but a fucking show goo inside. Are you having a period? I about fucking lost it. I mean, that was perfect that he said that because that's how men dismiss women, you know, point blank. And, and especially in the workplace. And I could not believe it. And then I was so glad when she just pulled the plug on the performance. So one of the actors who I left out of the list of just you know, people before they got bigger and people who are still, uh, were names and faces that you might know was Harry Lennox. And I had a chance to speak to Harry Lennox recently. He was on our tightest episode and I talked to him about being part of Bob Roberts. He played one of Bob Roberts security guards. Takes a loan from a Midwestern SNL. He puts the money in a quick drying ink well. Takes a loss, gets cross, walks to the corner store, pulls a knife, calls his wife, can't take it anymore. Look out, Joe, how far will it go? Take away the fire, where does the love go? wanted to ask you about an early role. Uh, I know it's a very small one, but I, I think you have a nice little piece in Bob Roberts. And just wanted to ask you how that came together and what it was like working on that. Well, it was, uh, that was 92, I remember it. And uh, I auditioned, you know, a bunch of the guys. I don't think Tim came to Chicago, but Forrest Murray, who produced the film, came to Chicago. I put myself on tape. Um, I loved the script when I read it. Tim did a great job writing it and directing it. And um, I really wanted to be a part of it. And it was one of those things, not a lot of money. We all work for scale. Uh, but it was something that, right in my wheelhouse politically at the time. Um, that was 92, so of course this is, uh, you know, the time when Clinton was really taking it on the chin. And I was at the end of, of, uh, of, of Bush going into the Clinton age, as it were. Uh, but I think Bush was still in office, the old, uh, HW, 41. Uh, and we had a lot to say. You know, we were young and sort of revolutionary-minded and, all of these uh, things, and uh, it really spoke to where I was on the map, so to speak. So uh, I based the character on a guy that was in the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas, Hill Clarence Thomas era. His name was John Doggett, and he went to Yale with uh, Anita Hill and with Professor Hill and Justice Thomas, and. Um, was a very, very interesting guy. You could tell he was a conservative. Uh, black conservatives at that time were, were almost uh, unheard of, but uh, he was one, and he didn't have any problem admitting it. And uh, and I thought that it would be an interesting character study. I then later played another, you know, black Republican and commander in chief, uh, opposite Gina Davis as the first female president, and um, and so you know, I mean, it's, it's always been curious where where political allegiances lie and so I was very interested in and in, uh, in in, in, uh, Bob Roberts and was glad to be a, a part of it. it 
I know it was scripted, but it really does have the feel that it was documentary and, and that. Was there a lot of room to play with it when you guys were doing it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it was a mockumentary, I guess they call it. And uh, we had a lot of uh, improv license. We took a lot of it. But uh, but Tim wrote such a brilliant script that there wasn't a need for much of it. Um, I'm sure a lot of it made it into it. But, it, but I wish in some ways it, it just stuck to the script <laughs> because it's very interesting. And I, and I thought very a very accurate depiction of, you know, of a, 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 a kind of political phenomena, you know, like Bob Roberts. So, yeah, very interesting guy. I don't think that Bob Roberts actually would, would be possible today. I don't think a character like that, a figure like that in political terms and political reality is even possible right now. You know, kind of rock and roll uh, Republican. I don't think that you would be able to find that, you know? Yeah, it's it, it's definitely an interesting film. One of my favorites in terms of, uh, you know, the mockumentary style and just this whole idea of a, sort of a the, the opposite side of the coin of Bob Dylan. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly, but, but in politics, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, fascinating thing. What did the teacher tell you in school today, in school today? What did the teacher tell you in school today, my child? Said it's a crime to say a little prayer. Said God's no longer wanted here. Oh, that's why the silly teacher told you in school. Thanks to Mr. Lennox for coming on the show. You can hear the first part of that interview with him over on our recent Titus episode, which you can get through our website, projection-booth.com. The part of uh, him as this young African-American Republican, I thought was so fascinating because there's a couple points where they just directly address it. The uh, Lynn, Th- uh, is it Thigpen, who uh, was uh, in the Warriors as the, uh, the let's get down to it, boppers, uh, her voice. <laughs> she was so good in that. Um, her, you know, asking him about his views and everything. Is he one of yours? <sighs> sure. Hey, brother. Does getting in on the ground floor mean checking your skin at the door? Wait a minute. Can't black people have more than one opinion? Oh, you're still black? Yeah, I'd like oh, to think oh, so. Damn oh, I guess we all have to adhere to the same militant black party line. And, and then later on, when they're having this discussion on the campaign bus, the Hope bus, or the uh, pr- sorry Pride bus, which I thought was quite a great term because you get so many different connotations with that. You know, you get the lion, you get the, the, uh, pridefulness, and then you also get the whole white pride kind of thing. Um, th- the conversation that the girls are having with the guys in there. And what's the one girl say something about? I've never even had fried chicken. Yeah. There's some sort of remark that is sort of aimed at. A stereotype of African Americans, and you see Harry Lennox sort of move his arm from around oh, her, yeah. her shoulder to uh, sort of looking the other way, like he doesn't, like he wants to get away from them, but he can't because he's sort of stuck on the bus. Oh yeah, and yeah, that was great, and I even loved him in the scene later on when the uh, filmmaker is interviewing Roberts, and he turns around and he's kind of there in the conversation before he gets you know like told by Roberts to basically turn back around and pay attention 
um, when he's there, like smiling and like does the hi mom. I was like, that is so great. Just that little moment was such a nice little, you know, moment of truth in this documentary. I was like, that is great. Yeah, it's like I said, I think it still holds up. As a matter of fact, I think the ideas across all three films still hold up. Although, to be honest, I'd rather re watch uh, Face in the Crowd and Bob Roberts again than You're the Yahoo. Um, although it does have some good ideas, I just, uh, at times it was, I just found it a little bit uh, um, hard to get my my head around and, and keep attention. So let's kind of talk about all three of these since we already had laid out sort of what we felt for each individual ones and sort of talk about things that we see as like common through lines, differences, uh, places where maybe each one borrows from the other. What do you think? I mean, I'd say the most obvious common through line is the fact that all three main characters are musicians. But um, I find it interesting that all three characters have distinctly different motives. Um, you know, like the Lonesome Roads character, um, I, I don't think he cares politically uh, about one side or the other. He just wants to see how much money he can make. I have a feeling that if he were offered a position in uh, Curly's <laughs> cabinet or somewhere along there, that he would definitely take it. I can see him shifting from TV personality, singer, uh, actor guy into politician with just a push. I mean, not even a push, just a nudge. I could think that he would just you know, open right up to that kind of stuff because he already thinks that he's got the little man, the common man in his hand. So what's just a little bit more, you know, I can see him wanting to get a whole bunch of favors from whichever candidate he happens to help into office. Well, yeah. And and I, I mean, I'm not saying he wouldn't be interested in pursuing politics. I just think he wouldn't be concerned with, um, you know, parties, rather than just, you know, what's in it for him. Yeah, it doesn't matter who's in the White House, as yeah. long as he's getting paid. Right. Whereas then, when you go to New York, the Yahoo, um, that character was probably, I don't know, the most uh, kind-hearted of the characters. You know, in the end, he actually wanted to help people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I totally agree. He was the most apolitical of all of the the, the people that we're talking about. And he, but he seemed to kind of become political as the movie went on, and I like that he kind of you know grasped onto the power that he could have, and especially when he kind of broke with the handlers and tried to go out on his own. And then it was just such a sad statement to me that he wasn't able to get the numbers and pull the weight that he was with those master manipulators behind him. He seemed to suddenly be stuck, but he was kind of stuck because the real issues were coming out and people wanted to know what he actually thought about this stuff. And he wasn't able to necessarily tell them. And then once he started to get his, his, his footing on some of this stuff, I was kind of reminded of a, uh, a flip flopper that was uh, a candidate a few years ago where he seemed to be a hundred percent on all the issues, but everybody just kept saying the word flip flop. And uh, that's all that we could possibly think of when we thought of John Kerry. And, and then like, you know, following, uh, you know, for, for, for the, from that through line is, and Bob Roberts as a character, um, he was the one. He was the only one that was the same from beginning to end. You know, he he, he had a clear goal, 
Um, and, you know, um, nothing was changing his, his ideals. Just, he was, that, his character was so, I guess the word might be insidious. You know, just, it was just, I, I felt so dirty watching him. And then it was so terrible because I knew and know so many people that are like him and his followers and everything. And I just, you know, that they're still around and they're still this quote unquote silent majority. It's like, Oh, you know, it drives me kind of nuts. I mean, and then to see like the hero worship that the Jack black character and his brothers that they have for this guy. And they're not going to hear anything negative about him ever. You know, no matter what it is, they'll kind of manipulate it into being a positive. And that really, you know, he's kind of the role of Tomasi. He's the guy that gets away with it, which I was like, Oh, you know, even though there's that moment towards the end where you're like, okay, that's the, the smoking gun. But no, it'll get turned around in the way that everything else has, and he'll be the guy who comes out on top. And we've seen that, you know, even more so since 1992 with, you know, various oh, political yeah. campaigns. Like, something comes up and you're like, oh, this is, this is going to be horrible. And it's like, no, people get more incensed about, you know, some possible, oh, sexual thing than, you know, the fact that some guy was doing horrible stuff or killed someone or started a war that you probably didn't want on – you know, false pretense or, you know, all kinds of things like that, that, you know, you're just like, really, how come that didn't take them down? Hmm. Okay. But, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of the, the, the Teflon president or the Teflon candidate, when I, when I look at you're the Yahoo and Bob Roberts, there's uh, the, the thing with the music and how some of the songs in You're the Yahoo and in Bob Roberts uh, seem a lot similar in tone to me. And there's this one about um, cashing welfare checks in You're oh, the Yahoo yeah. that sounds like it was completely – could have just been put right into Bob Roberts. Three. talking about like poor people and how they want handouts and i'm a bleeding heart let's give money away and all that and i think they even use the term also bleeding heart in yearly yahoo yeah i was reminded of a few other films where we were watching these like um i don't know if you guys have seen wild in the streets where there's also kind of this politician um musician and um also what was the uh peter watkins one privilege there's kind of this politician musician type of thing too and then i've never seen bullworth but i imagine that there's some 
music uh, politics thing going on there? Well, in Bullworth, uh, he's not a musician, but when he sort of has his freak out, he starts talking in raps. It's hopeless, you see. If you run for office without OTV, if you don't get big money, you get a defeat. Corporations and broadcasters make you dead meat. You've been taught in this country there's speech that is free. Do not get no spots on TV. If you want to have senators not on the take, then give them free airtime. They will have to fake. Telecommunications is the name of the beast. Eating up the world from the west to the east. So he, uh, you know, kind of has a hoodie on and he goes to the debate and starts uh, talking politics and rap. So it's more the uh, man of the streets. There you go. Mm. I think I think the other um, through line similarity uh, to all three films is they all show different levels of how things in news, media, and advertising are all manipulated. Yeah, definitely, and oh, the the complicity of the newscasters, especially when it comes to Bob Roberts. I mean, it's just like every time the newscasters would talk about um, the Gore Vidal character, it's almost like they were, you know, had a smirk on their face. But when they talked about Bob Roberts, it was just, you know, yay, Bob, go Bob, basically. And it's like, wow, you know, there's, uh, and I love how his thing, when he would attack the media, Bob Roberts thing was just like, you're supposed to be objective. You're supposed to be objective. And it's like, really? <laughs> well, well, there's the, there's the piece with the Peter Gallagher character where he gives him the campaign button and he pins it on him. And then he's like, right. and here's one for your son, which reminded me of during the 04 Bush reelection campaign. There was footage that was leaked pre-roll of an interview between a uh, Fox News, a national Fox News reporter uh, doing an interview with George W. Bush. And the reporter's talking about how his wife's been working on the Bush campaign and she's really excited and all of this. So it, it's, it's not too far from the truth in terms of some people who, you know, there is no line of division there. You know, they're supposed to be quote unquote objective. You're supposed to be objective, as Bob Roberts says. But uh, there, there's no division there where they're still, they're still rooting for one team over another. It becomes more like sports than really sort of informing the public. And the way he gets so bent out of shape when the, Lynn Thugpin starts asking him hard questions on the air, it's just like, how dare you question me? You have just said that our chief executives are immoral criminals. I take offense at that deeply. I'm an American that believes intensely in morality, and I believe in the sanctity of the office of the presidency. I trust that the American public does not share your cynical anti-American views and will cast their votes accordingly with pride and conviction. Thank you, Kelly and Bob Roberts, for that not. thought-provoking dialogue. Because it means morning, you want Americans to cast their right votes back. based on hatred and ignorance. What is that? You're taking sides, ma'am. You're abusing your responsibility as a journalist. I am offended by you, sir. If I ignore my feelings, I'm taking your side. Yet isn't your job one of objectivity? You're not talking about objectivity. You're talking about ignorance. Bob Roberts is Nixon, only he's shrewder. More complicated, this Bob Roberts. Now, here is a man who has adopted the persona and mindset of the free-thinking rebel and turned it on itself. <laughs> the rebel conservative. <laughs> that his deviant brilliance. You know, and it, he was, he just has this 
air of entitlement. I mean, this to me has to be one of uh, Tim Robbins's best performances because I know he is not like this. <laughs> and for him to be able to pull this, you know, character out and be able to to show him in all of these different facets. Before I forget, one of the things that amazed me was his wife. And I was so shocked. Like, I thought that she was going to go the entire movie without having one line. Because I think she only has, like, two lines in the entire film, and they're towards the end. I was just uh, just kind of amazed that she just was so much a sideline character. And I kind of appreciated that she was um, in that capacity. Because it was just like, she's the arm candy, and that's it. She's there to make him seem like a good family man and, and trustworthy. Because obviously he must be if he's married, right? Oh, yeah. As for the if they hold up. Yep. Yes. Um, I I think there are certain aspects of each film that hold up better than others. Whereas, like I think in uh, A Face in the Crowd, the Lonesome Roads character almost seems like a template for some of our loudmouth uh, conservative radio hosts these days. I can very much see that. Yeah. And um, I I would say of all of them though, Mir um, Yahoo is the one that holds up the least. Yeah, I mean, I would probably go back and check it out um, another time, but I think that it's telling to me, like you had said, like this was one of the few Herschel Gordon Lewis movies, or the only Herschel Gordon Lewis movie that didn't make a whole lot of money, and it's kind of telling to me. It's like it reminded me of um, Roger Corman with The Intruder, where it's like he makes the one social message movie. Which is a terrific movie. The Intruder, to me, is still one of the best films uh, out there. And that that's the one that loses him money. So it's like you, you try to put a message out there and nobody wants to hear it. And I don't think that Bob Roberts uh, really kind of took the box office by storm either. I think, that was de- I think Bob Roberts was definitely um, one that kind of grew in the video market. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And this was, you know, um, Tim Robbins was... I won't say he was at the height of his popularity, but I mean, the player, even though that wasn't a huge movie, that was a huge comeback for Robert Altman. And I remember that got a lot of play. I mean, that was a lot of people were talking about that film. And that was one that I went to see at the theater multiple times. I'm not sure why I never saw Bob Roberts. Um, but you know, this was like the golden era of, um, Tim Robbins. I mean, he's just a few years before Shawshank Redemption, you know, Hudsucker Proxy. I mean, to me, this is his golden era because none of these are making a whole lot of money at the box office. You know, <laughs> he's other than like being in Green Lantern, which I think also was, that was more of a critical failure, but I think that succeeded at the box office. It's not like you think of, of Tim Robbins as being in these huge movies, you know, like the biggest one that I can think of was probably Jacob's Ladder, and I don't think that that did anything either. But yeah, I mean, for me, this was prime time um, Tim Robbins with the player and shortcuts and Hudsuck Proxy and Shawshank Redemption, and right in the middle of that is Bob Roberts, and I didn't see it, so I don't know what my problem was. Maybe, Maybe it, was it had a very small role. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe it was just the title. You're like, who's that? Whatever, you know. Maybe, or maybe it just came and went at the box office. I'm not sure what it was, but that I never checked it out on video. 
I don't know what my problem was. Maybe maybe uh, IQ left a bad taste in my mouth. Well, I'm glad you checked it out um, on my recommendation because I think it was me that wanted to add this one in if we were going to talk about all this because uh, it's always been one that's been very popular with me. Well, yeah, actually, I think this kind of came about this episode with Josh, you recommending You're the Yahoo, and then I knew Rob really liked Bob Roberts, and then I kind of brought um, – facing the crowd to the party. So I think these three, you know, you get these three guys in the same room and there'd definitely be some sparks, but it was uh, a great time being able to watch all these films back to back. I think that we could have a super tour. I mean, Lonesome Roads, uh, Hank Jackson and Bob Roberts going out on the road together. Play free man in the morning. Gonna be a free man in the morning. Free man in the morning. And, and I, I know I definitely mentioned Bob Roberts in my email when I first recommended Year of the Yahoo. So, yeah, we've never really done like a, a, a proper triple feature kind of thing. You know, we've talked about entire series and all this kind of stuff before, but this is the first time where I think we've said, okay, we're going to sit down and watch three movies, definitely from three very different political eras. I mean, we're separated by 20 years apiece between each of these films. And so I guess we're, we were due for one of those, or are we coming due for another one of those? If the last one was 92, it should have been 2012. So apparently the three of us missed whatever the big 2012 release of a, uh, po- a very skewering political film was. And I know that it wasn't Wag the Dog. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I like Wag the Dog, but it wasn't then. That was 97. But uh, That's right. 97 or 98. But um, uh, I don't know. Maybe it was one of those um, uh, Transformer films. <laughs> Pretty soon they will be reevaluated and we'll be like, oh, no, the, the Transformers films were all about uh, Middle East interference. That's why that uh, Josh Jushamel uh, character was in there. Yeah, yeah. I, I can see that. Yeah, oh, so, yeah. yeah. So, so tune in in like another uh, 30 years and we'll be uh, chatting about that. Yes, we'll do all – by that time, it'll be like all 16 Transformers films. Six, just 16? That's more like 60. And okay. uh, Mike and I will uh, both be senile and uh, in an old folks' home. So uh, make sure to tune in for that. It'll be fun. Rob, where were you the first time you saw Transformers? Eh, who are you? <laughs> when am I getting my rice pudding? <laughs> Before we wrap up, I did have two other points that I wanted to uh, to, to bring up. Oh, I don't know if we can take more points after we're just kind of jawing on about stupid Transformers movies. (laughs) Yeah, go right ahead. All right. Um, Number one um, was the Bob Dylan connection. Now, this this may be reaching a little bit, um, but, you know, as we know, there is definitely a lot of referencing of Bob Dylan in Bob Roberts. but the weird thing I found was in the Bob Dylan quasi-biopic, I'm Not There, from 2007, they actually have um, Dylan quoting lines from uh, from Face on the Crowd. Really? Yep. Oh, that is too weird. Yeah, apparently at one point he recites part of one of uh, Rhodes' monologues. Interesting. Yeah. Yep. And uh, my second point was, I think, um, out of all three films, 
if I had to pick the one kind of most damning part, you know, about the, the way um, politics is manipulated, is actually towards the end of Year of the Yahoo, when after he's lost the election and everybody's wrapping up, and Sid mentions to the other guys that he's going to work on a nature show and then take a, and then take a swing at the presidential election. And they're like, oh, I didn't know you were already on board for that. And he responds with, what makes you think I'm on your side? <laughs> <laughs> I think in a way, as far as the, the, um, the marketing manipulation aspect of, of that film goes, I think that's, that's the lesson, that's the lesson moment to take away from that film. Okay, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. You came here to my home about a murder? Get rid of him. Let's go, mister. What's your pitch, Lucy? What is this information you have? Why don't we stop the cross-examination? I didn't come up here to talk out of school. Why did you come up? Why don't we call it research or something? check with Lagana first. He might not approve. I'll have your badge and gun. Now. It's yours. Permanently. I asked for your gun, too. It doesn't belong to the department. It's mine. I'm warning you officially. Don't try to use it. That's right. Next week, we kick off November Noir with the classic The Big Heat. Don't miss it. Warm up your coffee now. Before we go, we want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Josh Gravel, for coming back on the show. Josh, last time you were here was quite a while ago, but we're glad that you're back. We were talking about Ricky Six. So what's the latest with you? Do you still love Satan? And uh, how are your screenings for the Arkham Film Society going? Yes, uh, I still very much do love Satan. Excellent. And... Um well, the screenings have slowed down a little bit. Um, to be perfectly honest, uh, being able to rent uh, venues that are 35mm capable has become a little bit of a hassle because they're all very expensive. And uh, But we're still doing um, screenings at a local art space called the uh, Empire Black Box, um, where we do um, not quite monthly screenings, but... Uh, we have fairly regular screenings. Um, if you search Arkham Film Society on Facebook, you will be able to find all of the necessary information. And uh, you can also go to ArkhamFilmSociety.com to find our blog. Anything else you want to plug while you're here? You know, nothing that I can think of at the moment. All right. That's fair enough. 
All right. Well, thanks again, Josh, for coming on the show. And thanks to Herschel Gordon-Lewis and Harry Lennox also for visiting. And thank you for listening. And, you know, October's been a pretty big month over at the Projection Booth and projectionbooth.com. We've released several special episodes this month, and November is going to get very dark and shadowy as we dive into noir. And as always, we ask you, if you dig what we do, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. You know, recommend it on Stitcher, pass it along on your social media, and uh, vote for us. Because unlike politicians, we keep our promises. I promise. Seriously. No joke. (laughs) Grandma felt guilty about been so rich and it bothered her until the day she died but I will take my inheritance and invest it with pride yes invest it with pride